welcome to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. I'm your host, Linda Woolard. On this episode, I speak with Drew Prestridge, president of Prestridge Political, who has spent years raising money for campaigns and organizations. Drew has advice on creating fundraising plans for candidates, beginning a career as a finance director, and developing a range of skill sets to increase your value on political campaigns. Drew Prestridge, thank you so much for joining me on Louisiana Lefty. Linda, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we go way back. Uh, when did we first start working together? We certainly do. Gosh, um, I believe 2015 at the State Democratic Party, right? Was it 2015? It was that year. Was that your year there that you started? Yes. Yeah. So- the, the the year that we you know eventually after much hard work elected a democratic governor, right? Yes. Um, so yes, yes, 2015. I, yeah, I believe I started right around the beginning of the year. And you had been there and been working, you know, there for a while, right? I was there a couple of years, yeah, at that yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. That, that was my last year officially there. So. Well, was I, it good? <laughs> it, was a, it was a good year. I thought that was a... I thought, I thought going out on the high note of electing John Bell Edwards was not a bad... It's not yeah. a bad a bad exit strategy. No, and, no, definitely not. So, and we still actually work together, Drew, because you are the creator of our uh, organizer of the month graphics that we put out every month when we award a new organizer of the month. I am, you know, like graphic design has always been something that I've just loved doing. I'm not professionally trained whatsoever. I mean, I think I've taken a few, like you know, Adobe classes here and there. But yeah, I mean, I've always loved and enjoyed it. And, you know, thank you for the opportunity to be able to, you know, visualize all the great organizers you are highlighting every single month that, you know, not enough people know about all the good work that they're doing. So it's really cool to play a small role in that. Well, and I've I've loved the, the images we've been able to come up with because they just, they're very cool. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah, so so we worked together in 2015 in the State Democratic Party. I was the finance director for the party at the time. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of being able to keep up with you in New Orleans, you know, here in between. Tell me what your political origin story is, Drew. What first got you interested in politics? Well, we probably have to go all the way back to like fifth grade, uh, student council, but <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've always just, I've always been politically inclined. You know, I've always been interested in elections and campaigns and sort of like how our government works and runs and, and how we, you know, as a democracy, put those people, you know, put our trust and belief in those people to represent us and get things done for us, right? So I was always involved in, you know, political stuff all through school, all through college. Got through college, it was like, you know, maybe I can do this for real and actually maybe like influence, you know, where it matters. Did you tell me you did Boy State? I did. I did. I, um, my, uh, high school, my senior year sent five boys to, to Boy State. And then I went back the year after and I was a counselor. Tell me a little bit about Boy State. <laughs> yeah. 
it was a lot of fun. This was, gosh, 2004, 2005. Seems forever ago now. But it was great. I mean, it was, you know, being from, I'm from Lafayette. So this was my first, um, these days it was at LSU. And so it was my first kind of like, you know, big time sort of like out of Lafayette by myself without the parents, you know, with hundreds of, you know, 17 year old boys, you know, who some of them like me, extremely interested in, you know, politics and government and how our state was run and being able to see the Capitol and, you know, meeting current elected officials and others who were, you know, all right, like I'm, I'm here to, you know, make friends and, and, you know, just mess around. So, <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun. It was, a, it was a really good time. We, uh, I, I ran for actually this may have been, you know, foreshadowing. I ran for political party chair for my parish. They had two parties, the Federalist and the Nationalist. And I was a nationalist. I ran for political party chair. I won. And so my job was to pump everybody up, you know, get people excited and energized for the party meetings and rallies that we would have. And then also make sure that we were sort of kind of like whipping and counting the votes that we needed as well for our candidates that were running for like big positions at Boyd State. That's cool. That's cool. Well, between Boy State and now, tell me what you've been doing in politics. Give me sort of your mini bio highlight. Yeah. So mini bio, I've been professionally doing this for over a decade. I've been working on Democratic campaigns all over the country. Um, So not just Louisiana, but I've also lived and worked in California, New Mexico, New York, Georgia, Virginia, D.C., So kind of, you know, all over the place because, you know, I realized like there's always good people running for office. They just need good staff and they need, you know, people obviously helping them out. And if you're willing to move around and go anywhere where the opportunities are, if you have, you know, the ability to be able to do that, pick up and go around, then there's always going to be good campaign work out there for you. Obviously, I love Louisiana, but I got I graduated in 2010, got my start interning in politics here at that time. As we all know, that was not a great year for Democrats. <laughs> One of the worst. I mean, you know, the, the the campaign I was interning for, I mean, just like this Democrat didn't even support Barack Obama 100 percent. And it oh, wow. didn't, didn't matter in Louisiana um, at the time because people just saw Democrat and that was it. Right. So, you know, I realized if I wanted to get some good Democratic campaign experience, might have to go elsewhere for a little while and then come back and be able to do some damage in Louisiana, right? So so that's why I kind of like bounced around. And I've done, I've worked on all levels of campaigns, everything from, you know, city council to presidential campaigns. And, you know, I've managed, I've done some field, but the majority of that work has been in fundraising. I realized early on that, you know, with the campaign finance laws that we have, with the way that money affects campaigns and elections these days, that, you know, the very first person hired on a campaign is usually a finance staffer. And the very last person left on the campaign is usually a finance staffer. So it's good to be able to have, you know, good staff that are skilled in that, help you get up off the ground, help you, you know, establish a good campaign, and then help you wrap everything up in the end, or, you know, continue going right after you win. So that, that seemed to be where a lot of the opportunity lied in gaining experience in that area and being able to really help, you know, good candidates get into good positions and then, you know, go off and do good things. And it, was that really your main reason for wanting to do fundraising was the opportunity or was there something else that drew you to it? 
I, I think, you know, I kind of got into it right after the speaking of, you know, we were talking about the Supreme Court earlier, kind of right after Citizens United and, you know, kind of the, the whole conversation was just happening or just starting to happen about how corporations and super PACs and large pockets of money really can influence elections. Clearly on the Democratic side, you know, we want big money out of politics, right? We do not, we want there to be a more equal playing field, more level playing field. We want, you know, the average person who is not wealthy or rich or, you know, part of a corporation or have the ability to self-fund a super PAC to be able to have their voice heard and have an equal voice um, across the board. So that part really attracted me to fundraising as well, you know, and figuring out, okay, you know, if we are going up against, you know, some of these corporations, some of these super PACs, how are we able to raise the money and run the campaigns in order to compete with that and making sure that we're representing people according to our values as well throughout that process. And, you know, I've worked on with all the campaigns I've worked on now, I've definitely seen many, many times that money is not everything that sometimes, you know, you can be outspent three to one. You can't have a super PAC coming against you. And because of the values that you are putting out there because of the people power that you have behind your campaign, um, the grassroots power working for you, talking to people, you can't overcome that um, and still raise the money that you need to run an effective campaign. I mean, for some of these campaigns that um, influence local politics, you don't need millions of dollars to run an effective campaign. You need to be able to have a clear budget and goals along the way and make sure that you're raising the money that you're spending, you know, at the appropriate times, make sure you've got all your bases covered. You can do, I mean, if you're smart about it, you can do a, a lot with a little. Even given that, Drew, what is it that's so critical in nature about fundraising or a fundraising apparatus for a campaign or a state party or even some of these parish executive committees or PACs? What, what's the piece of the puzzle that's so critical about fundraising? Sure. I mean, while money is not everything, you do have to have money in order to get your message out there, right? You do have, you do need to have, you know, a base foundation to be able to support the, the message you're putting out, be able to support the operation that you're doing. So again, while you don't need millions of dollars for some of these raises, you do need to figure out, you know, at a minimum, okay, what do I need to raise in order to be able to hire the staff I need to hire? you know, do the voter outreach that I need to do, place the ads I need to, to place, reach people that I need to reach. I mean, just unfortunately these days with the campaign finance laws we have, um, you know, there is no campaign, unfortunately, a lot of times if you don't raise the money that you need to be able to do those, those bare minimums on the campaign trail. What do you think Democrats need to do to get better at fundraising? Oh, boy. Um, you know, we were talking a while ago about the Supreme Court and about how Republicans have played the long game for a long time when it comes to a lot of the issues that we're kind of reckoning with recently. And so I think that what what Democrats can do better is maybe there, you know, there's a lot of donors or um, or just even, you know, average voters that a lot of times complain. I only hear from people whenever there's election happens. Right. Or I only I only get a call from you a few times a year when you need something. I think that at the end of the day, whether you're doing fundraising on a campaign, whether you're doing field, it's all about relationships. It's all about 
thanking people, making people feel special, making people feel valued that they're a part of something bigger than them because they are. Um, and so I think fostering those relationships and keeping in touch with your constituents, with your donors, with every stakeholder in your campaign, even when you're not campaigning, like if you get elected, you're not running again for maybe four years. A lot of folks don't, don't keep up with, with the people that supported them initially. And this can be as simple as sending out newsletters every now and then, you know, doing teletown halls, um, writing thank you notes every now and then, just like touching base with people, sending like mailers to check in with folks. Um, some people are great and some people aren't. And so I think like that's one thing that I really see on our side that's an area for improvement as far as just making sure we're, we're staying on people's radars, um, keeping them connected, making them, you know, in, informed um, from a legitimate source as to what actually is happening um, and how, you know, showing them like, you know, the investment that you made in me initially as a candidate, this is all the good stuff that it's doing now. So like, if you're, if you're showing them all that along the way, it'll be that much easier when you come back to them four years from now, meaning their support again. So that leads me to ask you, what makes a good fundraiser? Someone who makes a good fundraiser, I think is someone who, um, you know, has, is not afraid to, or not apprehensive to talk to anyone and everyone, <laughs> and is also, um, you know, willing to actually ask for money. You know, a lot of people, I think rule number one about fundraising is, you know, you have to make time for it. Fundraising is not just going to happen. Unfortunately, people are not waking up every day wondering about how they can give to your campaign. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so I think that you need to make time for it and you need to ask people and you need to probably ask them again. And I know it seems weird. I know like, you know, it, it's, it seems like a, a necessary evil to some people as far as, you know, the, the, the way that money can influence things these days. But it really is necessary. Um, so I think you need to be able to talk to, you know, talk to anyone and everyone, be willing to actually like sit down and, and take out the time to do the fundraising. And, you know, it can be pretty effective. And I guess what I hear from people, uh, a hurdle for folks is their fear of rejection when they're asking for money. How do you handle that? I mean, you're going to hear no a lot. I mean, just, you know, just like, with the way that it is these days, you're going to get a lot of voicemails. You're going to leave a lot of messages. You're going to get told no a lot. But for everyone out there that is telling you no, there are those people that will tell you yes. Um, so, you know, you just got to stick with it. I mean, it's like almost applying for a job sometimes. You know, you're going to get a lot of rejection. You're going to be, you know, there's going to be people that pass up your resume. There's going to be people that tell you no. There's going to be people that are distracted. But if you hustle, if you stay focused on it, if you're putting in the time, um, then you will eventually, you know, get those yeses. You will also in the process, get better at doing it too. You know, a lot of people start off, you know, I've seen first time candidates who, um, you know, obviously like start off a little bit rocky with the initial phone calls and initial asks, but the more time you put into it, I mean, the more natural it becomes, the more you learn how to react when someone tells you no, or someone tells you, maybe I need more information. And then by the end of the campaign, I mean, you're almost a well-oiled machine when it comes to having those conversations. What are the different kinds of fundraising you've done? And I ask you that because I know you've done some digital fundraising. And what 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 would you call are the different kinds of fundraising you've done? 
Sure. So yeah, digital fundraising for sure is is something that I do a lot of. Um, you know, these days, especially post pandemic, um, or you know, mid pandemic, I guess you know, depending where you live in the country. Um, yeah, there's there is a, a lot of campaign activity has shifted to the online space, right? So you know, a lot of communication and money that we raise for campaigns is done um, through email and done through. Uh, Zoom and virtual events uh, and, and things like that, um, and it is it is really important for a lot of campaigns too because I think it's a great way for you to be able to build up your grassroots support, sort of like you know that people power that I was talking about earlier. Um, you know, the digital space is is not really a space where you know large donors give large contributions, right? That's sort of still you know the best way to kind of go after that is still kind of through like in-person meetings and phone calls and events. So the online space though, has made it a lot more accessible for the everyday, you know, average voter and everyday person to be able to get involved and influence campaigns and give, you know, on a smaller scale, but, you know, with, from a much larger pool of donors. So you're increasing your reach. You are, you know, raising money and um, your it, it, your average donation is staying low. I mean, like it really helps like a lot of aspects for campaigns that are looking to really build that sort of like people, people power and grassroots um, network, which is super important because at the end of the day, you don't want to just be a candidate who is backed by 10 large donors, right? <laughs> you want to be able to have um, a lot of people that are in your corner, a lot of people that are investing in your campaign. So when we say digital, what are we talking emails? Are we talking social media? Is that yes I mean, and or? Yeah, I'm mainly talking emails. I mean, I have, I've done some digital fundraising over social media, but I haven't found it to be as effective um, as email. Um, texting is also something that, um, you know, I think is growing a lot right now. Um, when when texting kind of first started in in sort of like the digital campaign world, I feel like a lot of people thought it was super intrusive, uh, more intrusive than like sending an email or you know making a phone call that someone is choosing to answer. Right. Right. Surprisingly, what I've seen on a lot of campaigns is that the response rate for text message is really high, um, and especially for younger people and folks that are you're trying to get more engaged to your campaign. Um, a text is not as intrusive as you might initially think that it is. Um, and, and the, res the, the response rate, even with like a link asking for money, um, is a great way to like, again, like you're not going to get a $5,000 contribution over a text message probably, but you might get, you know, a thousand one dollar contributions, you know, like it, it adds up. And again, it increases like the pool of people that you're reaching that you can go back to again and again to, you know, to help fund your campaign. I can anecdotally say I don't really give money from texts, but I am on the Wisconsin Democratic Party's lists because I do throw them money every now and then. But they did get me because the the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party started a text list for, I guess they figured out who likes dogs. <laughs> Because his dog now sends out texts. 
And that one gets me every time. <laughs> he sends uh, me a text from his dog. I'm like, oh, all right, I'll send him $5. <laughs> see, and, and not just so they're texting you, but they're targeting you. They know information about you. And that's how they can get you to give as well, right? Right. Um, that's what's really cool. I mean, like not just with fundraising, but with digital ads and stuff these days too. Uh, I'm seeing it a lot more effective than you know traditional broadcast or cable ads. Like when you're on social media, you can target you know Linda Willard, you specifically, your demographic, your location, your likes, your interests, and tailor you know an ad specifically to you and your audience versus buying you know the six thirty Jeopardy spot on abc that you have no idea you know who's watching <laughs> and these days if they're even like watching the commercials or fast forwarding through them right if they're you know recording it and watching it later um so you know i've seen a little bit of like fundraising kind of dabble into that too but as far as the online space goes the most effective digital fundraising i've seen has definitely been through emails and through texting programs how are you getting an email list to get to enough people to get money. Yeah. So um, building an email list, there's there's a bunch of different ways this happens. I mean, when you start with a, a candidate, obviously, like their personal contacts, their emails, their network, um, you know, people they know, right? Like if somebody gets an email from them and they know them, they're in their personal network, then that's someone we can assume is probably okay being on their email list. Um, anytime, anytime I set up um, campaigns and, and send out initial emails, I always also put like an opt out um, option as well, because, you know, a, a lot of people wonder how they got signed up on the list, don't want the extra stuff. Um, you know, it's totally their choice whether they want to stay on it or not. Um, so, you know, taking the, the candidate's personal network, um, sometimes as well, this the state party um, provides email addresses that they have in like vote builder and their database. Um, you know, if it's like their democratic endorsed candidate, then they will provide emails in that candidate's district that they have um, to add to the candidate's email list. And um, they can either, sometimes they can even do like a, an email swap where like the democratic party will send out an email for that candidate to that candidate's district. Um, the candidate will, do the same and then they will kind of swap like whatever emails are whatever people open each email that the other person doesn't have on their list already they'll they'll mutually swap like that same number of emails as well if that makes sense to so sort of like build the list um and then you know there are other you know through through vote builder and stuff like that there are other you know if they have phone numbers if they have people's emails and stuff like that i mean that is public information that democratic campaigns pay to have access to that then they can then use at their discretion. And the sneaky way I know to get emails, which we worked on a lot when I was at the party back when Kirsten was there, was actually while we were not asking for money through social media, we would create uh sign Barack Obama's birthday card yeah. or sign yeah. this petition that says we want you to vote for this particular bill in the legislature. And uh, when folks would sign up for that, we would then get their email address, which we then yeah. could add to the email list. And now you've got an email where you can ask them for money. Social media is great for that too. Yeah. You always want to be able to have a sign up for my emails like on your website. 
And then you can just post that on social media. You can include that on a lot of the stuff that you send out. So you're always getting new emails cycled in. Obviously, everybody, every time somebody donates to your campaign too, that email comes into your system. So yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that um that you know people can elect to sign up and be added to an email list. And then, you know, if their emails are already there from another democratic server, you know, those can be added there. And if they, you know, want to unsubscribe, they can do that. Sure. Well, and look, I get more texts now for donations than I would I've, I've gotten used to it like you said initially it was like why do they have my cell phone number I'm now it's just like oh delete 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 I don't really worry about it too much I don't fret but as Democrats if we're actually saying we don't want corporations to fund elections then at some point we do have to understand that candidates and PACs and whoever they have to raise money they've got to find a way to raise money from a grassroots level and it just requires this level of outreach and this amount of outreach to get the money they need to run campaigns it's just something that is baked into the cake now that i think and i'm mentioning this because i hear people complain about it a lot mm -hmm. and i think it's just something we've got to get used to yeah i mean even with all the technology we have these days i do not think that anything has replaced just the good old-fashioned phone call person-to-person -person connection and conversation when it comes to effectively being able to raise money from somebody. Um, and unfortunately, with the, with the campaign finance laws we currently have, with the amount of money that is going into some of these races that the, the opponent and the other side is putting into some of these races sometimes, we have to spend a ton of time on it and able to like get our numbers up to the level they need to be at, right? So, you know, I... As a fundraiser, I know it sounds weird to, to say I'd love some campaign finance reform, <laughs> um, you know, to be able to make everybody's life easier. But until then, I mean, like, you know, the the other side is is playing the game. So we got to play the game, too. Well, you mentioned phone calls and one on one conversations. Let's talk about call time a little bit. Let's do it. Let's talk to me about the importance of call time for a candidate. Like I said a while ago, fundraising is not when I get to it, right? You have to set aside dedicated time in order to fundraise or it will not happen. On campaigns time and time again, I've seen, you know, call time or fundraising time scheduled out that undoubtedly gets booted or moved for a meeting or for, you know, a photo shoot or for something else that's happening. Um, but I mean, the truth is, if you just don't make that time, if you don't put in the hours, um, then you're just not going to hit those goals. So you need to set aside that dedicated time for it. And then you need to make sure that you're using that time effectively. I've also seen a lot of candidates who are on the phone, you know, talking to a donor, having a great conversation. If you don't get off that phone call without knowing, A, if they're going to give to you or not, and B, how much they're going to give to you, then that call is a waste of your time. <laughs> I mean... You you have to be able to ask for specific amounts of money, and there's a ton of tools these days. I mean, to be able to go online, um, look at what certain donors or certain folks have given in the past, um, to then inform you and kind of give you an idea of what their capacity is, how much they usually give to campaigns. Um, so making that specific ask, um, and uh, and then making sure that you're following up, right? Like making sure either you're sending that email afterwards with that donation link, um, you know, sending that um, envelope in the mail to, 
you know, if they want to give that way. There's a lot of people that have conversations and, you know, great, I'm going to give to your campaign. Awesome. And then they don't hear from them again or it drops off because everybody's super busy. You need to make sure that you're using that time effectively. You're making those asks. You're, you know, identifying who is giving to you and how much so you know how much to expect. And then you're following up and actually collecting that money. So you, as a fundraiser, would sometimes make the calls and then the principal or the candidate would also make calls. Is that, do I have that right? Yes. So, I mean, as a fundraiser, I do believe that the candidate is the best fundraiser. Uh, obviously it's their name that's on everything. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these donors, like they are the person that they want to talk to, right? The candidate though, unfortunately cannot be everything to everybody at all times. They have the busiest schedule. They have a ton of stuff on their plate, right? So I usually, you know, when I'm looking at a call time program, I'll take you know, larger donors, people that, you know, might be more likely to want to have a, a specific conversation with that candidate and hear from that candidate in order to make a large donation, prioritize those calls for the candidate, and then sort of take some of the other calls for myself or for the finance team that we can do ourselves through, through phone calls, through email, through whatever outreach we can, through inviting them to events. Um, and, you know, if they want to talk to the candidate, obviously we can connect them that way, but we have to make sure, you know, we're using the candidate's time most effectively because their time is so valuable. So it's sort of like a, you know, an all hands on deck strategy of, you know, which calls do we want for the candidate, which calls do we want for us, um, which folks can we, you know, try to ask in other ways besides phone calls, because we don't have all the time in the world either to you know, sit there and, and try to call every single person that we want to reach out to. So it's sort of an all, you know, here's all the different methods. And if, you know, we need to hit them up three different ways, then great. That's better than them not hearing from us at all. And do you sit with the candidate when they're making their calls? Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I've worked with some candidates that do not like to be staffed, but um, it is so much more effective if you're having a finance staffer sit there with you who can just keep you on task. Again, like it's so important to set aside this dedicated time and use it effectively and not be distracted, right? Like if you can, if you only have an hour, getting through 20 calls is a great use of your time versus sitting there, you know, being on your computer, getting distracted by your phone. You look up, an hour has passed and you've only made eight calls, right? That's 12 calls you didn't get to where you could have had really good conversations and could have gotten some pledges or could have gotten some people to give. So having a person there to, you know, whose job it is to, you know, keep you on track, provide the calls to you, making sure you're, you know, using your time effectively. Um, I, I've seen it make a real difference in the amount of money that a candidate is able to raise. And what's the best piece of advice you could give to someone about call time? The best piece of advice I could I could I could give you is uh, or like to a candidate who is maybe it's their first time running for office and they're dreading making calls is just trust the process like you know like uh, believe in the staff that you've hired you know let them guide you as to how you know this system has proven to work for other candidates over the years and if you stick to it if you put in the hours you know. Like we talked about a while ago, 
it's going to be a lot of no's. It's going to be a lot of left messages. It's going to be a lot of people not answering. But the conversations you do have are critical. And so if you put in those hours, the more hours you put in, the more people you'll be able to have successful conversations with, then you'll see the numbers rise and you'll see that it is an effective tool. So if you were working with a local, maybe a parish-wide or regional candidate who was running for the first time, how many hours a day would you recommend that they do call time? I usually start with at least two hours a day. Um, and a lot of factors depend on this, right? Like, are they working full time or not? Uh, also, like, how big is the budget? You know, are we talking about a race that needs to raise a million dollars or a race that needs to raise $75,000? Um, and how much time do we have to raise that money, right? So there's a lot of different factors that sort of go into, okay, this is how many hours a week you should put into it. And, and this is how many dollars you should be aiming to try to raise like per hour. Um, but generally on a, on a general basis, I would say, you know, at least two hours a day sitting down, um, you know, the morning is great because then you get it out of the way and you will, it allows more time during the day for those people to call you back. I like that tip. Well, I often hear new or inexperienced candidates complaining that the state party isn't turning over their donor list to candidates. And I don't even think that's legally allowed, is it? I don't think so. I, I know federally, like, you know, you can go onto the FEC website and look up all the donors who gave to a specific candidate, right? You cannot, it is against the law to like call off of that page on that website. <laughs> and I mean, the numbers aren't there on the reports, but um, what you're supposed to do is take that information and make your own list um, as to who to reach out to, do your own research on the contact information, right? Because those numbers and email addresses and stuff like that are not going to be on the report. It is not legal to just print out those lists and, and that just be the list that you fundraise off of. So as you basically mentioned, that information is all out there. It doesn't have to come from the party or another candidate. You can do the research and find out who donors are. It might not have the data on what their phone numbers are or what their email addresses are, but that might come in your other database that you're going to get from the party, which would be Vote Builder, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can use a combination of all those methods in order to sort of build your own fundraising list. And trust me, now in 2022, it is a lot easier to do this these days than it was when I started doing this in 2010, 2011, 2012. I mean, we used to spend hours peeling through physical finance reports. It, it was insane. Now you can, there are programs and there are good websites out there um, that can compile this information for you and also even compile um, more specifically like a donor's giving history. Um, and that's been super helpful to me. Like if I know there's a donor specifically that I want to ask for, you know, to give to a candidate, um, I can use these websites or programs in order to see, you know, compiled from various websites online, the FEC, Open Secrets, Louisiana Ethics, wherever there are campaign finance reports available online, it compiles all of their donations, all their donation history. So I can look at it at a glance and figure out pretty quickly what their capacity is, and how much I want to ask them for. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's taking that and then you know, figuring out who these donors are and then using Vote, Build, Vote Builder is a great tool in order to, you know, get pretty accurate um, phone and email information based on 
what people provide to the state party, what people provide in their voter registration records. Um, you know, and, and even it sounds silly, but even websites like usphonebook.com, truepeoplesearch.com, like there are good websites out there that you can actually find, you know, it's kind of alarmingly surprising how much information is available online these days about you. Um, so, you know, sometimes I joke as a fundraiser, I'm a professional stalker. And <laughs> sometimes like when it's making these fundraising lists, it kind of feels uh, like that a little bit, but you know, it's all, you know, in the good spirit of obviously like being able to reach out to people and, and, you know, raise money from them, get them involved in a campaign for a good cause. But it sounds to me like you're making a case that it's really important for candidates, particularly new candidates, to hire someone, a finance director, someone who knows fundraising pretty well, that that could be a really key component to running an effective campaign. Absolutely. I mean, I, I might be biased, but I think it's probably the first hire you need to make. I mean, there's a lot of campaigns, even smaller ones that can don't need to have a ton of consultants, don't even need to have a campaign manager sometimes until later down on the road in the campaign. I mean, if you're just starting and you're maybe like a year and a half out over a year out from your election, that finance person, finance staffer, even if they're a volunteer, they need to probably be the first person that you come on. Because again, unfortunately, there is no campaign without no resources and without any money. So you need to be able to, you know, get a foundation um, you know, raise what you need to at least get up off the ground running so that you can then make, you know, figure out how you're going to get your message out there, hire your field staff, hire your manager, hire whatever consultants that you need. You can't do any of that, unfortunately, without creating that donor network and getting some of those resources in the door from the beginning. And then that sounds to me also like you've mentioned you've had other roles on campaigns. So that's helpful if you have a finance director who can also do some managing, do some field, do some graphic design like you. Mm -hmm. If if you were starting early on a campaign, you could help the campaign get away with not having to have that staff just yet by being able to also fill in some of those roles, I take it. Yeah, I mean, I've this has absolutely happened to me before. I mean, I um, had the opportunity to manage a rentable congressional race in upstate New York in 2016, actually right after I worked at the Louisiana Democratic Party. And one of the reasons they hired me as a manager was because of my fundraising background. Like they had a finance director, obviously on staff, but they wanted, you know, they saw a real asset in having someone who was versed in something as important as campaign finance to be able to come on board, manage the campaign, you know, that is also overseeing the fundraising process and adding, you know, their skill and expertise to the fundraising plan in lieu of being able to hire, you know, more finance staff at the time. Like they were struggling a little bit with getting money in the door, didn't have enough maybe to like hire another finance staffer, but having a manager or somebody else in the campaign that's also versus area that can kind of help out in the meantime was super beneficial. And how about the campaign finance reports or the ethics reports that we call them here in Louisiana, mm -hmm. is that something that the finance director helps with or do they need more of a legal person hired to do that? Uh, sometimes. I mean, it, it depends on the size of the campaign, but I really think if you have, you know, the resources and means to do so, you absolutely should hire like a compliance person um, or somebody who is versed in the campaign finance laws. Um, 
this is not always the finance director. <laughs> you know, the finance director is, you know, in charge of the income, like this, you know, the stuff that we're raising that's coming into the campaign every day, right? They are not the treasurer. They are not the the person who, you know, is usually preparing um, these finance reports. I mean, for a lot of my campaigns, like I'll I'll look over the finance reports before we submit them, right? Just to make sure all the contributions and stuff like that look, you know, are accurate and match what I have. Um, but, you know, the expenditures and the output of the campaign, that's the campaign manager and the person that does the budget a lot of the time who's overseeing that. Um, the person who's planning to go to the reports is usually the treasurer or a compliance staffer um, who, who may also be a lawyer in some cases, um, you know, who is sort of like putting that together. And that's important because campaign finance laws are confusing and they can differ a lot from state to state. And they can differ for state stuff versus what's permissible, maybe nationally. So, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've seen candidates that, you know, very well intentioned, you know, didn't mean to be doing anything wrong. who just didn't know about certain things and, you know, messed up on a campaign finance report. So again, you know, like being able to have someone on your team that is versed in that, or at least access to, to have somebody look over it who's versed in it, or to be able to talk to you about this kind of stuff. I mean, you just want to make sure you're covering your bases because as a candidate, you shouldn't be worrying about that at the end of the day. You know, like your name is on everything, obviously. You are ultimately responsible, but being able to have somebody in your corner who can help you with all that, I mean, it's just, again, so beneficial when you're trying to do so many other things on your campaign. Really important. Not crossing the the law in your campaign. Really important. You don't <laughs> want to right yeah. You don't want to. You don't want to break any laws. Period. You, you certainly don't want to break any laws before you even get elected, right? <laughs> like, not a great start. Um, not a good look, especially if you're trying to get votes. So, hundred <laughs> percent. Drew, how right. would you start to build a fundraising plan? Yeah. So uh, it's it's you know, it's sitting down with a candidate and sort of like talking about who might be interested in giving to their campaign and identifying who those people are. I generally tend to put people in four different categories. And we're talking about people that we're going to be asking for money. The first category would be people that you know personally. Like, you know, if I'm a candidate, these this will be people that, you know, my family, friends, people I went to school with, people I work with, anyone I've, I've ever touched in any aspect of my life who I'm still connected to. I would literally download my phone contacts, download my email contacts, put them in a spreadsheet, make a list, you know, look through and who can I ask for money from this list, right? And that should be, you know, it, it seems counterintuitive a little bit because people are always kind of nervous to ask people that they know, um, <laughs> like for their hard-earned money, right? But, you know, these are the people that know you personally and and hopefully like you, right? So, <laughs> you know, if you're still connected with them and friends with them. So um, this is pretty low-hanging fruit. It should be people that, you know, when you're looking to build that foundation, when you're looking to get, a little bit of that money in the door initially so that you can have a base to begin to do other things off of, this is a great place to start and be able to, um, and you know, to get a good sum of money in the door fairly quickly. Um, the second group you would, I would then go to would be, you know, other uh, ideologically aligned folks, right? Like other Democrats, um, other people that um, support, you know, people like you that are running. So, you know, if you're if you're the only Democratic candidate in the race, great. You may not know this donor personally, 
but they are someone that gives to lots of Democratic campaigns consistently and recently. So obviously that would be somebody that you would go to and say, you know, basically, you know, I'm on the same team that you're on or working against the other team. I need your support for, you know, these values that we align on. Can you give to my campaign? Right. So that's the second group. So personal folks, people that are then I, I, I ideologically aligned with you. The third group I would go to um, are those people who you may not know and who may not know you or necessarily be 100% supportive of you, but they're definitely not supportive of the person that you're running against. Like, and, and this actually comes up quite a bit. Like, you know, I go back to 2015, right? John Bell Edwards versus David Bitter. I mean, this is a, a, a textbook example of, you know, John Bell worked extremely hard for almost two years going all over the state, connecting with folks. Um, and it was a real struggle to get money in the door initially. And because of that, a lot of people didn't know who he was. And obviously David Bitter had a lot more name recognition, was involved in state politics for a lot longer. A lot of people knew him. However, a lot of people hated him, disliked him for obvious reasons that we don't have to get into. <laughs> but um, So that really helped him, especially later down the road, because of all the work that that Governor Edwards did to put in to put in that time to get to know people. I mean, we eventually got a poll showing him and striking distance and showing him actually a little bit ahead of David Vitter and the, the switch flipped. And all of a sudden people are like, wow, okay, not only do we absolutely detest David Vitter and don't want him as governor, but you can actually win. And so now we're going to put everything we can behind you. Um, so yeah, so that, that group of people that, you know, you can get on your side because they absolutely do not want the other side in office is super important. I think that'll really come into play this year too, in light of the Supreme Court stuff. I mean, there are so many Democrats I've seen that are energized to run run for office and energized to vote because they are scared and they don't want to see more of what is happening on the other side right now and and are just absolutely disgusted by the Republicans that are unabashedly supporting what's happening right now. So I think a lot of a lot of people raising money this year are going to be like, look at the Republican I'm running against. You may not know me, this, this Democrat running in this district, but look at look at the Republican who's supporting what's going on right now. That's why you should support me and get invested in my campaign. And then the fourth group that I look to um, raise money from are sort of your um, your advocacy organizations um, and other folks that sort of get involved in the campaigns. So this can be organized labor. This can be, you know, environmental groups. This can be, you know, people that are um, focused on specific issues like Planned Parenthood, you know, when it comes to abortion rights, stuff like that. Um, these groups tend to tend to not donate initially, but you know, if, if you're a candidate, you're working hard, you're raising money, you're getting your message out there. If you're like, I talked about a while ago with governor Edwards, if you're demonstrating that viability, if you're, you know, showing, yes, I have a, you know, I may not be in the lead, but I have a strong campaign. I am setting myself up to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that are coming my way. I have a good staff. I, you know, you know, the wheels and the bus are moving, then these organizations can come in and say, great, like, got a shot. We want to help you cross the finish line. And so you'll see, you know, in the last month, couple months of some, you know, close campaigns, these kind of groups start to line up, get on board, you know, help with that final push 
Um, but again, you have to you have to work hard to get yourself in that position to be able to take advantage of, of that help. What I've seen sometimes is a lot of campaigns fall victim to sort of like the idea that you need to be doing exactly what some of these large organizations want you to do. Um, and while it is important, it's more important, I feel, to like run your own campaign and run the campaign that you know is working like in your area, in your district and wherever you're running. Because again, like they're not going to help out if you are not putting yourself in a position to win and be viable. So if you are, you know, keeping a good relationship with these organizations that can be helpful while running your own campaign and making sure that you're focused on what you know is working for you, then those opportunities will be there for them to help you out. That's smart way of putting it. And I love that you brought up polling because a good poll can really let folks know, as you say, mm -hmm. you're a viable candidate that you have the potential to win. And therefore, people will want to invest in your campaign more because people want to invest a, in a winner, people just naturally want to invest in a winner. But secondly, people don't want to throw their money away and you need to show them that they're not just wasting their money with you. Right. I mean, I have such a love hate relationship with polling, as I'm sure many <laughs> candidates and campaign staffers do, um, because sometimes, you know, some of these some of these donors, some of these groups that, you know, are looking to invest or looking to help out in some of these races. Sometimes, I mean, I mean, you know, their main questions are going to come to you and they're going to say, okay, how much money have you raised and what's your polling look like, right? And that can be, you know, a double-edged sword for a lot of campaigns because sometimes there are really good things happening on the ground, happening in campaigns that aren't reflected in what the campaign is raising or what the polling says. But, you know, if you do get that good poll, if you do get those good fundraising numbers, you know, sometimes that's more important for getting those other people on board and on your side. The polling situation may not be, if you're a new candidate, for instance, it may not be that you're showing that you're polling high yet, but if you can show that your opponent is vulnerable, like a, an incumbent is vulnerable and not, not getting at 50% of the vote, that just shows the opportunity for your campaign. If your campaign can take off, that right. they're right. beatable, you know? And that's where it's important in polling to test certain messages and um you know because every candidate obviously has their idea of like okay you know this is what i think would you know be good messages in order to gain votes right if you test those in a poll and then you can show in the poll how those certain messages move certain people from like the undecided column or from your opponent's column into your column then that's almost just, I mean, that is very helpful, even if you have an initial poll showing that you're down, right? I mean, if yeah. you can show that, like, look, with the right money and resources and investment and people involved in my campaign, this is where I can get. So that's why the investment is important. Um, that's why it's, it's you know, important to, to be able to show some of that polling information sometimes if you have the means to do so. And when, when you're setting up your fundraising plan, are you going to look at past similar races to see how much a winning race actually cost in the past? Or how are you deciding 
how much money you're trying to get. Yeah, uh, that that is very much the case for a lot of these um, districts. I mean, nowadays, like you, you pretty much can't run for Congress anywhere for less than a million dollars, unfortunately, um, these days. Um, but yeah, for some of these smaller races, you can look back and see what a candidate raised and spent um, to be able to kind of get a good sense of, you know, how much it might cost to run that campaign, especially if you're running against somebody who is an incumbent. I mean, you know, checking out sort of like what their budget was last time, what they raised, what they spent, um, that can give you a good idea of, of where to start from or how much you might need in order to run a competitive campaign that would be able to go toe to toe with them. Have you worked with nonprofits? Have you found some of this stuff to translate over to the 501c3 or c4 world? Yes, I have worked with some nonprofits. And what I will say is that I have found that fundraising is very different for them versus a campaign, mainly because these organizations, I mean, even for an organization like the state party, I mean, they're not a 501c4, but like an organization or a nonprofit that is not like running for office towards a specific election date, they're still there after election day, right? There's less urgency. There's less of like a, we're in, you know, if you're a candidate running for office, there's a very specific time period. You're racing towards a goal. You're racing to a deadline. We need this much before election day. It's so much, there are built-in urgency tools that make it so much easier to raise money from folks. But if you're an organization that's like, you know, we're here whether your candidate wins or not in this election, um, you know, it's not, the, the urgency isn't there, right? So organizations like this need to get a lot more creative. And I, I think one of the successful ways I've seen nonprofits or organizations raise money successfully are having donor programs, like having um, long-term recurring donor programs that investors, you know, regular donors, whoever can buy into, um, you know, whether it's, you know, they contribute one lump sum per year or they give, you know, twice a year or every quarter. Um, and then like maybe, you know, with that donation that they make, they get invited to one or two dinners or events or something that the organization will put on per year. Um, that's been a really good way to make sure that money is always coming in the door and that you're, you know, again, fostering relationships, like building sort of like your group of people that are behind your organization, investing in your organization and not just giving one time and then forgetting about you and you're forgetting about them. You may not have an answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just because I'm curious. Was there anything particularly interesting you learned from working at the state party? I mean, yeah, I mean, it was it was the first time I was raising for something that wasn't a candidate. Um, and so, I mean, before that, I had been working, you know, working in fundraising campaigns for about five years. And then I went to the state party. And I mean, for a lot of the year, it was like pulling teeth. I mean, a lot of that was circumstantial. I mean, we had just lost Senator Landrew the year before. Um, you know, there were a lot of people that were did not have a lot of faith in a statewide Democrat being elected. In Louisiana. So it was, you know, it was very hard to be able to, you know, get people to buy into the, the message of, you know, we can do this and here's why. Um, but yeah, I mean, but, but these donor programs I'm talking about, we sort of did, we kind of re energized that 
um, when I came in creating, um, I mean, they had like a recurring donor program before, but we sort of revamped it. Um, the, and I still, I think they still have it today, the blue crew, um, and, uh, where, you know, people could give anywhere from, you know, 20 or $25 a month to $500,000 a month. And with that, you know, they would get complimentary tickets to the true boop, uh, true blue gala, you know, that, that happened once a year, or they would get regular updates from the state party or complimentary invites to other events that were happening in their area. Um, certain merch and swag that we were selling. Right. I mean, it was a great, it was a great tool to be able to engage people all year long and have money, you know, even if it wasn't big amounts, just kind of always coming in the door and always working for us while we were going after some of these larger donors and, um, and having these larger events that were, you know, it was kind of working in tandem with some of the more traditional fundraising stuff we were doing that year. Well, you've worked for a lot of candidates that I particularly like, Deb Holland, which was one that I really liked that I got to go meet here in, in New Orleans at James Carville's yeah. house because she came here. Uh, I think it was Netroots Nation she was here yeah, for. Yeah, that's a fundraiser I organized, actually. I wasn't here for it, but I organized it. Um, yeah, um, Deb uh, was, I mean, that remains one of the most consequential campaigns I've ever worked on. I mean, she you know, was our first Native American woman elected to Congress. And that was a campaign, sort of what I was alluding to earlier. I mean, we were outspent three to one in that campaign. There, you know, we did have a pack that was helping us, but you know, it wasn't a huge amount. There were other packs also working for our opponents. Um, it was a six-way Democratic primary. So a lot of, you know, people who generally aligned on the majority of the issue. So it was like, you know, how do we stand out? And, you know, in the beginning, you know, she was told a lot of what, you know, candidates from her background are unfortunately told sometimes like, you know, you're a woman, you're a Native American, you're not gonna be able to raise the money, you're not gonna be able to compete with some of these other people that are in this race. Um, but I've, I've almost never seen a candidate work harder than she worked. And the inspiration that she was able to light in people. I mean, that was a true campaign of like actual people power and field and grassroots making a difference and overcoming, you know, a, us being outspent and us, and us being able to, you know, not do some of the things that some of the other campaigns were doing. We ended up winning that six way primary with over 40% of the vote, I think. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was just, it's, it's a pretty democratic district where she represented. So that, you know, the primary was it, you know, if you won the primary, it was, I think it was like a 98% chance or something that you were going to win the general. So winning that race and working on that race and being able to raise, um, money for her, you know, is, is remains one of the most formidable experiences for me. And with that too, I learned so much about, um, native American tribes and, um, and their issues in this country. I mean, we spent a lot of time going around to a lot of these different tribes and meeting with their leaders. And actually our campaign sort of like trailblaze um, or was a trailblazer for raising funds from, from tribal entities. I mean, I think we raised like 200, $250,000 from hundreds of tribes all over the country who um, wanted to see the first Native American woman in Congress. And it was, I mean, it was a movement. It was really great. 
And for anyone who doesn't know, what's she doing now? She is our current Secretary of the Interior. Also, you know, I mean, just continuing to break barriers and uh, and and you know chart the way for for other people, you know, that that haven't traditionally had a voice at the table and been represented. I mean, it's just really great. I'm very proud of, of all the things she continues to do. And then of course, the other one I'll name check is Cory Booker, his yes. presidential campaign. And I was like, <laughs> where where do I send the money? <laughs> I love Cory Booker, I talk I about figured, that. <laughs> I figured you were gonna bring him up at some point, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, he is, boy, I mean, he's the real deal, right? I mean, I, it's, it's rare that you work for someone who has, who's absolutely in it for the right reasons, who has her heart in the right place, you know, and, and Corey is the epitome of that. Um, just being able to, so I used to live in California for a little while. And so while I was there in San Francisco, um, I had the opportunity to work on the presidential campaign as the Northwest finance director. And so I was part of like a fundraising team of about, you know, 12, 15 people, um, that were working all over the country. And my area was sort of, you know, mostly San Francisco, Northern California, Silicon Valley, all the way up to Portland, Seattle, sort of all that, like, you know, Northwest area. Um, and I mean, it was, it, I mean, he was just, you know, it's so nice to meet like politicians and, and elected leaders that you admire and that you, you know, you wonder, are they too good to be true? I mean, that that's, that's the biggest comment I would get about Senator Booker all the time. Like, oh, he's, he's got to be too good to be true. And I'm like, no, he really is the person that he, um, that you see like in the, in the, you know, judicial committee hearings and the debates, like in all these different things, like that is him, like that is actually him and, uh, and, and what he truly like feels in his heart. And I mean, it was just, it was my first presidential campaign I've worked on and it was such a pleasure and I learned so much through the process. Well, if folks aren't following him on Instagram, I highly recommend it because he makes me feel better every day. Last three questions, Drew. What do you see as the biggest challenge for progressives in Louisiana? Oh, boy, there's quite a few. Um, <laughs> biggest challenge, honestly, is probably the fact that we are not viewed as a competitive state, I think. I mean, we are unfortunately written off sometimes by, you know, I mean, the competitive races aren't happening here. So money is not being invested here. Good staff is not being sent here. Um, you know, the attention is going elsewhere. And then it's sort of like a chicken and the egg situation, like because we don't get that good help and, uh, and the good attention on Louisiana, then it just like reinforces the fact that Democrats are not going to be as successful here as they are in other states, um, you know, and then that feeds into this whole group think of, you know, Louisiana is just not, not a progressive state or, you know, it's just, you know, most of these congressional districts are just red districts and that's just how it's going to be forever. Right. So I think, um, you know, there's a lot that goes into that, obviously gerrymandering, which we could talk about for another hour. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, unfortunately, the fact that we're just not a, not seen as a competitive state right now um, when it comes to national elections or uh, or other critical elections really doesn't give us as many opportunities as progressives to make inroads here as it does for progressives in other states. 
it is a catch 22 drew because what ends up happening is when it's not considered competitive so there's no investment in it and i understand why that is but mm -hmm. then your candidates who are most likely to win a race end up not running right? because they look at it and say, well, I can't raise the money. The polls aren't in my favor. So some of the folks that we'd love to see running end up sitting out. And I understand that because it's a deeply personal decision right. uh, to run for office. And I, you know, some of the folks in I have in mind have like young kids and I, okay, you want to, <laughs> you want to spend your time with your kids at this point in your life. I, I dig that, but uh, it is, I think that snowballs. Right. But at the same time, you never know. I mean, you know, some of those people that, you know, maybe the numbers and all the metrics do look like they are against you. But I mean, every now and then you can strike gold. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, not every election is good to have an AOC, but, you know, she still happened. Like, you know, it yeah. can, you know, if you have the right, you know, sort of, um dynamics and sort of electoral climate that could maybe switch things in your favor you know if you're setting your kind of how we talked about through this podcast episode like if you're setting yourself up to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that might come to you when that switch does flip if yeah. you take advantage of that then you can get somewhere what's the biggest opportunity for progressives um I'm sure you've heard this a lot on here, but I think it's like the younger generations. I think it's, I think it's young people. I mean, I really do. I think that, um, you know, there are more, there are more means and ways these days for younger generations and, and, and everybody in general to be involved with um, politics and with campaigns. Um, in some ways there's more uh, oversight and transparency. And in some ways it is also harder to get accurate information sometimes when you're looking for information. But yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, there's, you know, especially amplified through the pandemic. I mean, people want to be able to make a living and be successful right where they are um, and not have to worry about external factors or, you know, if they need to move somewhere or just like other stuff like that. So I think like, you know, younger people that are going to be looking to make those and hopefully make those investments here. Um, will also be the kind of people that want to see, you know, more progressive issues come to the forefront. Um, so, you know, I've got a lot of faith in my generation and the, and, and the generation, um, you know, after me to, you know, hopefully start being able to, to influence and have more of a voice and more of a say in a lot of our elections. And, and the fact is they already do have that power, you know, they just need to use it. Agree, agree. Drew, who's your favorite superhero? Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many. What I will say is that I've been there's a show I've been watching recently that is that has become my favorite superhero show, The Boys. Have you seen it? I have, yes. Yes, yes. So I this this has dominated all like superhero conversations and thoughts that I've had recently. I just finished the most recent season. And I mean, for anybody that's not watching it, I mean, it is, um, I, I will say like, it is, it is definitely an adult show. It's, 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 uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of dramatic things that happen. Um, however, it is an incredibly smart satire send up of not only like superheroes, 
and the whole sort of like Marvel universe, but also like our current like American politics. Like it's, it's actually a really good blend of like superhero universe sort of stuff and um, kind of kind of like mirroring what's happening in America right now and and very recently. I mean, there there are characters and um, and certain people with certain motivations in the show that are exact, you know, replicas and parodies of, you know, sort of the, a lot of the issues that we're fighting against right now. And, you know, it kind of goes to show you that some of these like superheroes and people that, you know, other people give a lot of power to, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of corruption that comes with that. There's a lot of selfishness that comes with that. And a lot of times at the end of the day, the average person is the, is the hero. And like I was just talking about, has that power to be the hero and um influence what is happening even when they don't necessarily think they can um so i know that doesn't exactly answer your question but if, if you're not if people are watching it you need to watch it because i think and especially for political junkies i think it's like a really great like meshing and, and blend of of everything people are obsessed with about superheroes right now and the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe and everything with like contemporary American politics. Well, you've inspired me because I haven't started the latest season yet. So I will have to start I that now. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, it just keeps getting better and better and uh, and more shocking. Too. All right. I'm in. I'm in. Drew, thank you so much. Or as I call you, the other Drew. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> That's really funny, actually, because my my husband's goddaughter, when I first kind of came into the family, she, uh, you know, she she knows the only other Drew she knew was Drew Brees. Right. So she was like, oh, you're you're Drew, but you're not Drew Brees. You're you're." (laughs) so for years I was I was not Drew Brees. There he is. Not Drew Brees. But now she, you know, older knows knows who I am. So. Thank yeah. you for joining me to share your expertise. Really appreciate it. Of course. And thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to see everything you're doing. And thank you for doing this and putting a voice to progressive politics in Louisiana. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty. Jen Pack of Black Cat Studios for our super lefty artwork. And Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song.